0: Let me ask you this morning this question. What do you think about when you think about faith? I mean really, when you think about the concept of the word faith, what comes to your mind? For, for most people, religion. They think faith is religion, religion is, is, is faith, but, but is that really what faith is all about? Karl Marx called religion a, a sign of the oppression. The opiate of the people, Sigmund Freud, felt that religion is simply an illusion. But Augustine felt that religion was an expression of the restlessness of the heart to something out there beyond us. For most people, religion is a list of beliefs, standards, kind of a self-imposed code of of conduct, a bunch of do's and a bunch of uh, of don'ts. But that's not faith. Faith isn't religion. Religion isn't faith. Faith is not a code of conduct. But actually, faith, mature faith, genuine faith is the enjoyment of God. Uh, John Piper has it right when he writes, God is most glorified when His glory is most enjoyed. It's when we enjoy who God is and we come to the point we can actually enjoy our Creator. That's what faith does. That's what faith is all about. It is not religion. The Bible doesn't talk much about religion, many times negatively so, and from time to time when it speaks positively so, for example in James one twenty seven, it speaks of visiting the orphans and the widows and keeping oneself unstained from the world. But faith is enjoyment of a relationship with our Creator. But what kind of relationship and, and how do we know who the Creator really is? See, the Creator is infinitely outside. He's beyond. He's called holy because He's different from what He's created. And unless He made Himself known, we would be clueless that there even is a Creator and that the Creator wants any kind of relationship with us, His his creation. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that He did reveal Himself and He wanted to be known. We know that from Genesis 1-1 when God says, Hi, let me introduce myself. I made everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yet Paul tells us in Romans 1 that he also made himself known, that is his divine uh, 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 power, uh, his his eternal power, divine nature, by what he created. People ask, how come the universe is so huge and we're so small? The answer is simple. If you were going to communicate the concept of eternal power, how big would you make the universe? If you wanted to communicate divine intelligence, how complicated would he make the universe? But the universe is huge, and it's cold, and it's brutal, and it's dark. And so it doesn't tell us anything about the personal nature of the Creator. And that's why He sent His Son into this world. Remember in the Gospel of John, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember verse 14? The Word became flesh, dwelt among us so we could see Him. Why? Verse 18, for He explained... God to us. He manifested, helped us to get a good look at the personal nature of our creator. Only problem is that Jesus is no longer on the planet. So people who don't know much about God or of God, are they in the dark? How's God going to make himself known now that is his personal nature? Well that's where we come in. Did you know that God never calls us Christians? Not even once. That was a label put on us identifying who we worship. Christereonus, Christ worshipers. That's what the world calls us. God never calls you a Christian. He either calls you children, either a Pideon, a little infant, or a technon, an offspring, a child, or he calls you a saint. Saint. Do you know that we are called saints over 60 times in the New Testament? I like the sound of it. Saint del Hussein. But what in the world does it mean? It doesn't mean goody-two-shoes. A child, I understand, a child reflects their father. What does a saint do? Well, the word saint is from the word hagios. It's a word like holy. All it means is set apart, different. You are set apart, different, and literally all the sainthood means is you're set apart to be used by God. Set apart, different from the world, to be used by God. Somehow God uses that difference. And the question is, well, what's the difference? Well, Peter gives a clue, and he quotes Moses, "There in Leviticus 11:45, Moses says that God says, "I am holy, therefore, be holy as I am holy." God calls certain people to be his holy people. Israel were called his holy people. Well, what does that mean? They're set apart to be used by God for some reason. What a reason? In the same way a child is to reflect the nature, the holiness of their father, so a saint is set apart to be used by God that the world might be able to see the same thing they saw in Jesus. That is the personal nature of God himself. But when I think about sainthood and holiness, it sounds like we're back to a bunch of do's and don'ts, and so now we're back to religion. You know, we need to understand something this morning. Unless you understand why you do what you do, or unless you understand why you don't do whatever it is you don't do, there's no honor in it. You can obey God in your mind all you want, and if you don't know why you keep His commandments, why you obey Him, there is no honor of God. That is empty religion. That is simply a code of conduct And it draws no one to God, it repulses people because it is religion. See, this is why we are becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not disciples of God the Father. We're not disciples of the Holy Spirit. We're disciples of the Son, Jesus Christ. Because as the Son came to manifest the beauty of the personal nature of the Creator... So He's called us to do the same. That's why we're becoming His disciples. Remember Matthew 10, 24, 25? He says, it is enough for a disciple to become as His master. So why are we becoming more like Jesus Christ? Because the more I become like Christ, the more I'll be manifesting the beauty of the very personal nature of the one who created me. Well, here we are the night before He's crucified. If you have your Bibles, open your Bibles to John chapter 15. If you love Jesus, open them up. And then what we have here is this is the night before he's going to be arrested, executed, crucified. Back in chapter 13, he's washed their feet. He humiliates himself because he knows the next day he's going to be humiliated by Rome, And he wants to prepare the disciples for this. And so he humiliates himself by washing their feet. Only one disciple had a problem with that. Who was it? Peter. And who was the only disciple who had the problem with the crucifixion at the next day? Peter. And then in chapter 14, he mentions the fact that they thought he was going to be king of the hill. And they're now frightened because he says, I'm leaving. I'm going to be put to death. But I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will send another comforter. The Spirit of God will come be with you, will be in you. And now he pauses and he begins chapter 15. And he looks at the men. And then he says this verse 1 I am the true vine and my father he's the vine dresser now every branch in me that does not bear fruit well he takes away every branch that does bear fruit he he prunes that it may bear more fruit now already you are clean because of the word which I've spoken to you now abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me jesus goes to this metaphor of the vine but he doesn't say i am a vine he says i am the true vine what's he talking to well, what's what's he referring to is it the fact that he looked at the glass cup of wine and God says, well, no, I, I'm the true vine. No, no, he's very intentional what he says here because he's going all the way back to Isaiah chapter 5. See, in Isaiah chapter 5, there was a prophetic parable shared. Let, listen to Isaiah 5, 1. It says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning the vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a f- very fertile hill. He says, and he dug it and he, and he cleared it of its stones, and he planted in it a choice, choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and then he hewed out a wine vat in it. He's going to produce grapes, great wine, great expectations on this vineyard. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded worthless, wild grapes. What is this? Verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield worthless wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it waste. It shall not be pruned or uh, hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that it may not rain upon it. Wow! Who's this vineyard now that was planted had every break to manifest fruit of grapes. It says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Why did God call the house, the people of Israel, His holy people? Because they were set apart as a vine to manifest the fruit of the beauty of the very nature of who God is. And how well did they do? They absolutely blew it. Because instead of showing the beauty of faith and the beauty of the personal nature of the Creator, all the only nature they showed was the nature of religion and themselves. Look at Ezekiel 36. He says in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations which you profaned among them. They manifested religion. Every nature other than the nature of the creator. So people were repulsed against God because they were repulsed against religion. And so therefore the wine that they were to produce, the beauty to manifest the beauty of the personal nature of the creator, they manifested their own natures and therefore they produced worthless grapes. Worthless wild grapes. All they produced was religion. Jesus now comes. He says, I am the true vine. I am going to do what they were supposed to do. I'm going to manifest the beauty. I'm going to manifest the name of my heavenly father. That's why Philip, a little later when Philip says, Well, God, Jesus, show us the father. and Jesus said, Philip. Have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Colossians 1:15, the Son is the visible image of the invisible God. Remember, the Son is the deity, dwelling fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form, Colossians 2:9, so we could get a good look at what the personal nature of deity, our creator was like. Why in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 2 and 3, and the Son is the exact nature of the personal nature of the Father when you took a look at Jesus you got a good look at the very personal nature of the Creator Himself and that's why Jesus said I am the true vine and I will manifest the beauty of the nature of my Father but the problem is that Jesus is not here he left the planet almost 2000 years ago so does that mean everybody now is in the dark no no that's where we come in because the vine will continue to produce the fruit of the beauty of the very nature of the Creator, but now the vine's going to do it through the what? Easy question, starts with a B. Through the branches. Through the branches. I remember when I was young and I heard a sermon on this, he said this is about evangelism. The fruit of, of, of the vine is, is bringing more Christians, uh, more people to Christ. Branches produces branches. If you've got a vineyard and all it's new is branches produces branches, you've got a bad vineyard. Branches are not to produce branches. They're to produce fruit. And these branches are going to carry out the very fruit that the vine is causing them to produce. That's why we're disciples of Christ. What fruit is he talking about? In my life, what can be manifested? Well, Paul made that clear in Galatians 5. He says the fruit that the Spirit of God will produce in the branches. He says we're talking love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, Jesus is reproducing His image, His nature, the personal nature of His heart and desires. He's reproducing them in us because we are the branches, and that is why we're called children, because we're reflecting the nature of our Father. That's why we're called saints. We're set apart to reflect the beauty. We're different to manifest the beauty of the nature of our Creator. Well, then why is it that some of us do and most of us don't? because the way we respond to the vine dresser notice here the vine dresser does two things go back to uh, John 15 he says in verse 2 every branch in me that does not bear fruit the vine dresser the father he takes away every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so it's going to bear more fruit so the vine dresser the father himself is engaged in this vineyard and it says he does two things he first takes away when the branch is not producing fruit, when the branch is producing fruit, he, he prunes it. What's this? Well, first of all, I think we have a mistranslation. Because when it says he takes away, the word is the Greek word iro. And I'm not alone on this. I mean, uh, New Testament scholars agree with this, and Jesus does too. This word iro, it doesn't mean to take away, it means to lift up. It always means to lift up. Grapes do not grow like melons, you don't put grapes and have them on the ground. If you've ever seen a vineyard and you see any branches uh, uh, of a vineyard on the ground, they're always going to be tied up, lifted up, to expose them to the sun so they can grow. Here he says the first thing the vine dresser does, he lifts up and he exposes those branches that are not producing the fruit to the truth. What is the truth? Later in John 17, Jesus will pray a prayer that we get to listen in. It's between Jesus and the Father. And he prays this prayer and he says, Lord, I I pray for them, not that you take them out of the world. Lord, if you take them out of the world, no one's going to know what you're really like. But Lord, leave them in the world, protect them from the evil one. But God, sanctify them. The word sanctifies, the same word for saint, that is set them apart, God, as holy, different. He says, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. You cannot be like someone you don't know anything about. And so we are not producing the very nature of God, possibly because we have no idea the very nature of God. So he exposes, it, lifts us up to the truth of his word. That's why you come to church. That's why Jamie, Pastor Jamie teaches from the scriptures. That's why I would encourage you to take, come to the seminary and out of the class, take a class. But anything you can do to deepen your understanding in what God has revealed about Himself and about us and the world in His Word, I don't understand why biblical illiteracy is a virtue. Why would anyone be proud of being ignorant of the Word of God, the very revelation of God Himself? It makes no sense to me. And so the first reason some branches do not manifest any fruit it's because of their illiteracy, their ignorance of the very truth that God wants to use to sanctify, to cause us to understand more of the one whom we're reflecting as his children and called to be his saints. Look at the second thing the vine dresser does. When the branches are producing fruit, he prunes them. What's this pruning? Well, branches, are when they're producing uh, grapes, then basically that's great. But you have little branches, and they're not producing anything but other branches. Those are called suckers. And he prunes the suckers because they're producing nothing. In other words, if my whole life is all about I've got to be me, and I want people to all know about my nature and know about who I am, and I'm going to be true to how I feel, and I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want, because I want people to know me. That's a sucker. Because that's not who we are. We are here to manifest not my personal nature, but rather I'm here as a child of God to reflect the personal nature of my Father. And that's why anytime time I'm producing and manifesting my own personal fallen nature, it is never blessed by God. But rather it will be disciplined by God because He's pruning you. Now, notice here He says, So therefore abide in the vine." What is this abiding? It's a simple Greek word, meno. It simply means to remain, to continue. Note, not to be moved off when you're being pruned, when you're being lifted. That is, when you have an opportunity to learn the word of God, don't run and don't blow it off. And when you're under God's discipline, and he's plucking the suckers because you're out of control and manifesting your own nature and your own emotions, then he says, don't move off. Abide, stay, and let him do his work. Look at verse 5. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. This is a transformational deal. This is not a reformational deal. I'm not reforming my behavior. That's like taking fruit and tying it onto a tree and explaining to people that it's not plastic. That's religion. That's hypocrisy and people see right through it. But rather, as Augustine said, love God, just love God and do whatever you want. In other words, what he's saying is stop trying to be good. Yes, you heard me right. Stop trying to be good. The reason is because you're defining what you believe God good to be, and that is idolatry. That is idolatry. Stop trying to be good, just abide in Christ. Love God, do whatever you want. That's authentic and real. And notice what he says in verses six to eight If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch, like a branch. And withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Don't take the metaphor too far here. People say, these, these disciples are already scared to death. He's leaving. They think they're going to be arrested and killed as well. He's warning them about a worthless life, not going to hell. He says, You're going to be like a branch that's, that's, that's gathered with other branches and burn and perish. He's talking about hell. He wouldn't be talking about perishing because hell is for eternity is for eternity, separated, isolated from God himself. Here he's warning about a worthless life. He says, if you abide in me, verse 7, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it's going to be done. You're going to be so in tune to know what the will of God is that when you pray, you'll always be asking for the will of God. And when you do, your prayers will be answered. For this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, you manifest to the people around you, give them a good look at what the personal nature of your creator is like. And so prove to be my disciples. So notice how he unpacks this metaphor. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in His love. Now, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Remember what the word joy means? The absence of? You know, I, I, I've read that every four years, a church absolutely changes, which means only about 20 of you even know who I am. So we will review... The word joy, kara, literally means the absence of fear. To embrace the future without being driven by fear. Humanity lives their lives driven by fear. And here he says, I'm telling you this stuff. I'm reminding you who you are, a saint, a child of God. So when you get up in the morning, you know who you are, why you are, and what you're supposed to be about for the whole day. Instead of getting so distracted by everything else everybody else is so fearful of, you need to be abiding in Christ. You need to be remembering who you are. And that's here he says, I write this so that your life is not driven by fear, but that my joy will be in you. Notice he says you abide in Christ and you abide by keeping my commandments. By keeping my commandments, you love me as I've loved my Father and I keep his commandments. Abiding is a blend of both. You say, now do I obey God or do do I love God? They're both the same. By obedience, that's how I love God. I love God by obeying his commandments. Now remember I said, unless you know why, You do what you do, why you don't do what you do. There's no honor to God in any of it. It's empty religion. So why do we keep the commandments of Christ? Answer, because it's in keeping the commandments of Christ that the very personal nature of God is manifested in my life and I don't even have to think about it. I don't have that guarantee with keeping the commandments of you. I don't have that guarantee of keeping the commandments of my government. I don't have that guarantee of keeping the commandments of myself, but I do have the guarantee that if I keep the commandments of Christ without even thinking about it, my life will manifest the very personal nature of my creator. And fruit will be produced. That's why he says this is what it means to abide, the essence of abiding in Christ, for the Spirit of God produces it all. So, I, I, I'm a child of God. It means I reflect the personal nature of my Father. The world knows that God, if they do believe in God, by the creation, they know that He has eternal power and He has divine nature. But His person, His person, His heart was seen in His Son, the true vine. But the Son is gone. But the true vine will manifest the same beauty through the branches. That's who we are. That's why we are. This is not a religion. Because religion is about idolatry. Especially those in the Christian faith. Keller has written a a book called Counterfeit Gods, I think it is. It's it's excellent. It talks about the fact that in the Christian community, we have three idols. And, And idols defined as simply this. I can't live without it. Whatever there is in your life you believe you cannot live without, that is your idol. And you're an idolater like everyone else. Because there's only one, only one that we cannot live without, and that is God Himself. Now the thing is, in Christianity, we make three idols. Idol number one, biblical accuracy. Now, I'm into biblical accuracy, but that what happens to my biblical accuracy as we start fighting over our biblical understandings and we've got conflict in the church. Second idol, size of my ministry, my life effective. My ministry is bigger than your ministry. My your ministry is bigger than my ministry. And so all of a sudden, well, does that create? Arrogance. And the third idol that we create is basically this code of conduct. The way I conduct my life. I'm pure, I'm clean, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do. And all that does, that idol creates self-righteousness. Now listen, beloved. The world, they're not seeing your biblical accuracy. They're not seeing the size of your ministry and desire to be faithful. They're not seeing, indeed, that you're trying to live a righteous life. What they see is conflict, arrogance, and self-righteousness. And that's why they have a disaffection for religion and for God. And this permeates our culture, beloved. This is why Satan is behind religion. We're not talking about religion, we're talking about faith. And faith is the enjoyment of our Creator by enjoying and celebrating living out the very heart of our Creator. Well, what does that look like? What is the heart of our Creator? Do you remember quickly when Moses went up Mount Sinai? in Exodus 33, and he asks God a question. He says, God, show me your glory. Remember that? What, 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 is, what is Moses actually asking God? The word Hebrew word glory is synonymous to one's name. Basically, his reputation. And what do you want known? What Moses was asking God was basically this. God, what is it about you you want us to know? Finally, God gets to speak for himself. And it's interesting, God says in Exodus 34, I'll tell you what, I will declare my name. I will declare my glory. Here's what I, the Creator, wants known about Himself to this world. I want them to know my compassion, my graciousness, that I'm slow to anger, I am forgiving. And remember the word hesed, steadfast, loving kindness. The word means I'm all about the well-being of others. And that last one summarizes all of it. If I am all about the well-being of others, then I will be compassionate. What is compassion? When I see someone hurting and I do anything to relieve some of the suffering, that's compassion. What is graciousness? If I'm all about the well-being of another, I'll be gracious, that is, even though you don't deserve it. I will affirm, I will encourage, I will bless, I will serve, I will profit you in some way. Slow to get angry. Everybody gets angry. Everyone's like a shortened fuse. And the more conservative you are, the more shortened your fuse is. Well, the problem is this. God says, slow to get angry. And God is forgiving. That means I'm not the one to bring the punishment. When you forgive someone, doesn't mean you like them. doesn't mean you trust them. You probably never trust them again. But it does mean you will not bring the punishment upon them to lift off the punishment, that's forgiveness. And That's exactly what God did in Jesus Christ. Here's remarkable. Psalm 103. This isn't just in Exodus 33 and 34. Psalm 103, David is talking about God as our loving Father, compassionate, understanding Father. It says he knows we are but dust. I was a junior high pastor for seven years. <laughs> it does retard your social development. And I, I'm sorry, this will offend some, but who cares. You know, uh, the fact I remember I had these 7th graders and we were talking about this Psalm 103 that God knows we are but dust. And they started all laughing. So what are you laughing at? So God calls us but dust. Well, I said, no, no, that's not, you've got to put a comma there. But dust. But I still think they had it right. Now, you say, that is so offensive, I'm going to email Jamie. That's right, Jamie, Scottsdale Bible Church, You email him and just tell him how inappropriate that was. What I love about Pastor Emeritus is you can't hurt a dead man. The point is basically this. In Psalm 103 when David says God is a compassionate father and he knows our weaknesses in other words. He uses those same exact five words. For God is compassionate. God is gracious. God is slow to get angry. God forgives. And that same word hesed. God is all about the well-being of others. You see, that's the fruit. That's why Jesus said in Matthew five sixteen, let the world see your good works, the word kalos, your beautiful works. Let the world see you manifest the beauty of the personal nature of your creator, and they will be drawn, it says, and they'll glorify God. That's why he says here in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, made known that you bear much fruit Therefore, Jesus says, you'll prove to be my disciples. Prove to be my disciples. Beloved, that's why we get up in the morning. That's who we are. If you want to live out a religion, then just keep a bunch of code of conduct, do's and don'ts. Don't have a clue why you do it, and the world will run from your hypocrisy. but you are a child of God. 2 Corinthians 6 even says, you, I will be your father, you'll be my sons and daughters. As a child reflects, I remember my dad, after he got out of the rackets, my dad was a butcher, I'm a butcher's kid. Dad would wear this white shirt and this apron, but, but at the end of each day he'd come home and old Spock convinced my mom to to wait till the father gets home. And so dad would come home after a long day of work and first thing he'd hear from my mom's lips, you need to talk to your son. And I'd be hiding out in the back side of the, you know, the house and dad, of course, after he takes his apron off, but he still had blood splattered all over the white. I wasn't sure what he did during the day. <laughs> he'd sit in his big white chair, which I call the big white throne of judgment, and he'd sit there and he'd say, Daryl! Daryl! And I knew I was real in trouble. He would say, son, I want my son right here. And trembling, I would come and I would come and real slow and ten feet away. Son, right here. He'd get me right next to him. Half the time, he'd just backhand me. No, that wasn't the old. It's the other thing he did was the oh. He'd look at me. I have no idea how, but his eyes would water up. It's would say, son, you're my son. You're a reflection of everything I am. How could you do that? And I'd sit there and say, dad, hit me. Show me mercy and hit me. <laughs> because even at a young age, I understood why God calls us children. It's because we reflect and we're the only ones on this earth that will. And my prayers here in North Scottsdale and Phoenix. Let's get off our idolatry. Let's get off our religion. Let's get on to who we are. You are prince and princesses of the kingdom, your sons and daughters. Beloved, you're saints. That's what I mean when I say walk worthy. Heavenly Father, I would pray that we would. Keep remembering who we really are. Stop falling back into our old natures and thinking that we're something else. Lord, our faith, we want to enjoy you. And the only way we can enjoy you is to celebrate the very glory that you make known through us. Lord, what an enjoyment to be around compassion and graciousness. Lord, what a celebration to be around people who are slow to get angry, people who are forgiving. Ah, oh, Father, the warmth a being with a group of people who are all about the well-being of each other. Lord, help us get the wisdom that we might now, even as we celebrate, the cost of the special gift that made us your disciples, cause us never to forget. So much of the Christian life is an interior.